Good morning, one and all. Let's begin by reading in Romans chapter 9, beginning in the first verse. Again, that is Romans chapter 9, verse 1, where the Apostle Paul writes, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. Here is what we are going to do this morning. We're going to start way out here and then gradually narrow our focus and end here at the Lord's table. That's what we're going to do. We're going to begin way out here uh, with a brief review of the book of Romans. Very brief. Just an overview. uh, To keep it in mind's eye where we are at in this epistle. On Wednesday night, I asked the kids, hey, how long have we been uh, studying the book of Romans? And one of them sheepishly put up his hand, "Uh, two months? No, it's been over a year. Over a year that we've been in the book of Romans. And so I want to remind you of the book in its entirety. Brief overview. So we're going to start way out there. Then we're going to narrow our focus slightly and come to this new section that we are entering today, namely chapters 9, 10, and 11. And I want to give you a feel for these chapters. What's going on here? And is there some kind of structure that unlocks what Paul is saying in these three chapters? Then we're going to narrow our focus even more, right in on those verses I've read, and consider four lessons that emerge from these verses. Then we're going to narrow our focus finally, because that fourth and final lesson is going to bring us to the Lord's table. And we're going to partake of the bread and of the cup together and celebrate the gospel in the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's our order of business this morning. And so again, step back, stand back, think big, and think of Paul's epistle to the Romans in its entirety. And I'm going to bring up a slide, and there it is. What I want you to do, take your Bible, find chapter 16, the very last verse, and just kind of grab it like this. And then find Romans chapter 1, the very first verse. So you have it. There you have it. The book of Romans in your hands. And I want to give you, again, just this simple overview outline so you see where we are in this book. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 16, introduction. It's a long introduction in comparison to his other letters. Why? Because he did not plant this church. He has never been to this church. They don't know him. And so he feels the need to say a few things about himself, make some introductory comments. So it's a long introduction. Finally, in verse 17, he gets to his subject matter. In it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. 
as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And he's quoting from the Old Testament book of Habakkuk. And there he is giving just a synopsis, a summary statement of the gospel. That the just, the righteous, shall live by faith. All he does now in the rest of the book is unpack that single sentence. The righteous shall live by faith. And so we enter into section number one. It begins, yes, first chapter, verse 18. It goes, you flip over all the way through chapter three to verse 20. And we entitle this section, Condemnation. What is Paul doing? Paul is simply demonstrating the need for his thesis statement. The righteous shall live by faith. Well, why can't I live by my good works? Why can't I live by my warm and cuddly personality? Why can't I live by my endearing character traits? Why can't I live by my inherent goodness? Why can't I live by that scale when all is balanced, my good and my bad, the good, it balances in favor of the good and God accepts me. Why must the righteous live by faith? Well, Paul paints that very dark portrait, doesn't he? In that first section of our sin, and his point is simply this, to demonstrate to us that we are riddled with sin. Therefore, there is only one hope, and it is that the righteous, the man, the woman who is righteous in the sight of God, must live by faith. And then he enters into the second section. It begins there in chapter 3, verse 21, 22, goes all the way to the end of chapter 5. And we entitled this section, Justification. And so here he's giving the remedy to condemnation. The answer is justification. Justification is what? It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. What do we mean in Christ alone? Simply this, God justifies sinners, those who are condemned and guilty in his sight. He justifies them on the basis of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. Their union with him. Their union with Christ in his death. Christ paid the penalty for their sin. Well, they're now one with him. Their union with him in his life. Christ lived a perfect life. Christ lived a righteous life. And now they're one with him through faith. And because we are one with Christ through faith, his death is ours, his life is ours. That's what it means. The righteous, those who are accepted in the sight of God, those who are declared justified, pardoned, forgiven in the sight of God, it is because they are now righteous in his sight, because they are one with the Lord Jesus through faith. That is what Paul explains in this second section. Then he jumps into the third section, really chapter 6, verse 1 more or less, all the way through to the end of chapter 8. Don't mistake what I'm saying. He handles a lot of themes in here. But predominantly, he's dealing with the doctrine of sanctification. And he's dealing with an objection. The objection is this. Boy, I like that doctrine of justification. I like this idea that it doesn't depend on me. I, re I revel in this notion that God receives me in Christ and I'm accepted in Christ. I'm accepted because he paid the penalty for my sin and I'm accepted because he's righteous, he's obedient, and God now accepts his righteousness as mine. I really like it. And I guess that means I can now live however I please. What does it matter? It's not by works. It doesn't depend on me. What I do makes absolutely no difference. And Paul's answer in chapters 6, 7, and 8 is what? Perish the thought. I've never heard anything so ridiculous in my life. That's, big. That's not his words, but that is his sentiment. That if we are one with Christ, we are one with him in his death, burial, and resurrection. 
Yes, that deals with the penalty of sin, but it also breaks the power of sin. God sanctifies all whom he justifies. We dare not separate the two. We have two problems flowing from the fall. We lost the favor of God, and we lost the image of God. The doctrine of justification is God's answer to the first problem whereby he restores his favor. The doctrine of sanctification is his answer to the second problem, whereby he restores his image. A lot of people running around today reveling in the doctrine of justification, but want nothing to do with sanctification. Oh, they are distinct, but they are also, hear me please, inseparable. God sanctifies all whom he justifies. That's what Paul gets down to there in the third section. Then we come to what? You guessed it, a fourth section. Chapters 9, 10, and 11. I'll return to it in just a moment. There is then a fifth section. Beginning in chapter 12, verse 1, goes all the way through more or less to the middle of chapter 15. And there we have the application. In those chapters, there we see God's mercy in action. All those who know the grace of God. All those who have tasted of the mercy of God. How does this show itself in, the li in life? How does this manifest itself now in our love for God and love for others? Well, that's what Paul deals with in that fifth and final section, again, beginning in chapter 12, verse 1, through to chapter 15, verses 13, 14, somewhere around there. And then after that, you have a really lengthy conclusion in which Paul makes a lot of personal comments about some of his plans. There you have it, beginning way out here, an overview of the book of Romans. And you can see, if you've been here for any length of time, you can look back now and you can see where we have been and where we now are. We're entering the fourth section. So we're going to do the second thing now. We're going to narrow our focus a little bit to these three chapters, 9, 10, and 11. And I want to explain as simply as I can, as I know how, What's happening here? What's going on? This is where we're going to end up. Did the slide change? Yes, it did. That's where we're going to end up. How are we going to get there? As follows. I want you to use your imagination. Easier for some than for others. Out come the cameras. You can pay me later if you're taking a picture of that. How, how, do, we, how do we understand this? I want you to use your imagination. And I want you to imagine... You are a first century Christian. Can you do that? Living in Rome, hearing this letter read publicly for the first time in the gathering of the church. All right? And you've been following along, just soaking it in from chapter 1, verse 1. And as Paul has unfolded that thesis statement, the righteous shall live by faith. And as he reaches this climax, really, at the end of chapter 8, where he celebrates the fact that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that there is nothing in heaven above or on earth below, nothing in the entire created order that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, that as Paul has been unpacking, unpacking that, and as it's just been like this wave after wave of biblical truth, there has been one gnawing lingering question in the back of your mind, a doubt, a little dilemma. And I want to explain this dilemma by personalizing it. Imagine you're sitting there, 
and you've been hearing all this. And I want to try to sum it up in four personal statements. All right. And this will bring us to what's on the screen behind us and really understand what's going on in these chapters. Here's the first personal statement as you're working through all this in your mind. Here's what you're thinking. I know what it means to be called according to God's purpose. Amen. Hallelujah. I know. I've just heard what Paul said in chapter 8. I've just heard that, you know, for those who love God, all things work together for good to those who, who, love, who love him, right? And those who are called according to his purpose. I know what it means to be called according to his purpose. I've got that golden chain burned on my brain now, right? Those whom he foreknew, he predestined. Those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he glorified. Oh, what shall we say then to these things? Oh, I'll say this. There's no opposition to the power of God, right? There's no alteration to his justice, no limitation to his grace, and no separation from his love. This is delightful. I get it. I understand the gospel. I understand the sovereignty of God. I get the depth and the height of sovereign grace. Hallelujah. I know. I know what it means to be called according to God's purpose. All right? But here's the second thing going through your mind. I know the Jews are accursed. All right? That's what Paul says at the opening, his opening couple of verses of chapter 9. He gets very personal here. Just opens up his heart wide. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. Notice the next expression, second verse, that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Why, Paul? Third verse, four, I could wish, if this were possible, he's speaking hypothetically, if this were possible, I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites. Notice his expression there in the third verse, I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ. Draw a direct line between that statement and the last verse in chapter 8. Will anything, can anything separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord? He still has that truth in the forefront of his mind. When he now says, I wish that I myself could be cut off from the love of God. I mean, startling folks, isn't it? I, I could wish that I myself were separated, cut off, accursed from Christ. For the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, my countrymen, my fellow Jews, my fellow Israelites. This has been with the Apostle Paul since the third chapter. He hints at the problem then. And now we can personalize it as we're listening to this letter. There we are, first century Christians, city, city of Rome, church gathering, listen to the, listening to this read. Yes, I know what it means to be called according to God's purpose. But here's something else I know. I know that the vast majority of the Jews are accursed. Now, this isn't making any sense yet. But here's the third personal, third statement that you're just, just got going around in your mind. Here it is. I also know that these same Jews are privileged. I know they're privileged. 
And that's what Paul hints at in the fourth verse, beginning in the fourth verse. They are Israelites, and to them, he uses three relative clauses. There's the first, to them, in verse 4. Look at the second at the outset of verse 5, to them. And the third in the middle of verse 5, from their race, or from them. Three relative causes, clauses where he is emphasizing what belongs to those who are ethnic Jews. And he enumerates eight blessings. The first, verse 4, will to them belong the adoption. God called them out as a nation after the Tower of Babel, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. He permitted the nations to go their own way. But the nation of Israel occupied a special place in God's plan, the adoption. Look at the second blessing, the glory. What is that? It's the cloud. Remember the cloud that descended and led the children of Israel out of Egypt through the wilderness to the promised land. Remember the cloud that descended over the tabernacle, descended over the ark of the covenant in the most holy place between the cherubim. It speaks of the Shekinah glory. To them belong the glory. Notice the third blessing, the covenants, going all the way back to the Abrahamic covenant. And all that God said in that covenant concerning the land and the blessing and his seed. What else belongs to them? Fourthly, the giving of the law. The Mosaic covenant at Mount Sinai. When the Israelites were gathered at the base of the mountain, Moses went up into the midst of the cloud. There was the lightning and the trumpet blast and the earth shook and the entire mountain trembled. And there God gave the law to Moses, to the nation of Israel. Fifthly, to them belongs the worship. What's the worship? That entire Old Testament system. The, the, the Levitical priesthood, beginning with Aaron, the first high priest. All of those sacrifices, all of that ritual, all of that bloodshed, all of those feasts. Then sixthly, the promises. The promise going all the way back to Genesis 3.15. All of those subsequent promises found throughout the Old Testament were contained where? In the oracles of God, the word of God, the word entrusted to the nation of Israel, not given to anyone else. And then seventhly, what belongs to them? Verse 5, the patriarchs. Obviously, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, you add to that list, Joseph, Moses, Aaron, Joshua, the kings, all of these great patriarchs. And then lastly, eighthly, what belongs to them? Verse 5, picking it up in the middle. According to the flesh is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever, amen. He himself, the promised Messiah, a Jew, an Israelite. So I know, I know what it means to be called according to God's purpose. I know the vast majority of the Jews are accursed. You know, here I am living in Rome. There's a synagogue in Rome, lots of Jews attending it. Only a handful have converted. Only a handful have accepted the Lord Jesus as the promised Messiah and united themselves to us as Gentile Christians and now worship with us. The vast majority of these Jews look upon us with disdain. But here's the third thing I know. I know these Jews are unbelievably privileged. And it brings us now to the fourth statement as you're pondering these things and leads us into what Paul is addressing in these three chapters. Here's the fourth statement. Statement then, I am, given what I've just said, I am a little perplexed. I am a little perplexed. 
I explain it as follows. God glorified those whom he justified, right? God justified those whom he called. God called those whom he predestined. And God predestined those whom he foreknew. Okay. God promises to work all things together for their good. Okay. God promises that nothing can separate them from, the lo- from his love. Okay. Yet the vast majority of the Jews are separated from his love. It's the elephant in the room, folks. The vast majority of the Jews are accursed. If they are God's chosen people, yet separated from God's love, then maybe those who are called according to his purpose can be separated from his love. Do you understand the perplexity? The Jews, their history, their predicament in the apostles' day, first century, seems to contradict everything Paul has been saying in the eighth chapter. That if I'm called according to God's purpose and my security rests in his sovereignty, then how do I explain all these ethnic Jews? How do I explain the fact that they are accursed, yet they are privileged? How do I explain the fact that they are cut off, separated from the love of God, and yet I perceive them to be God's chosen people? What does that mean for me? And what does this mean for this notion that nothing can separate me from the love of God? Something separated them from the love of God. So maybe something can separate me from the love of God. Should I really be that excited about God's faithfulness? Because, you know, when I just look around, it's just, it's glaring. It's obvious. God's faithfulness seems to have failed. Should I really trust God's word? Because it seems God has Broken his word. That is what Paul is speaking to in these three chapters. And all he is trying to do, all he does is resolve it. How does he resolve it? Look at the great statement which governs the entire section at the outset of verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. In other words, I know what you're thinking. I know what you're thinking. As you work through those four statements, I know what it means to be called according to God's purpose. I know the Jews are accursed. I know the Jews are privileged. I'm a little perplexed. Hold on. Stop right there. It is not as though the word of God has failed. He now proves it all the way through to the end of chapter 11. And he proves it by making three central Arguments. That's what you have on the screen. Three central arguments. Argument number one. Here's what you must grasp. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. You get that through your, I nearly said thick skull, but I won't. You get that through your mind, then all of this dilemma just kind of dissipates. It disappears. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Oh, and there are lots of side roads there. That raises all sorts of issues. And so he stays with it all the way through to the end of the 10th chapter. Then he brings forth his second argument. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. But who is it that he actually foreknew? And he explains that in chapter 11, verses 1 through 24. And then his third argument, a great mystery. 
in verse 25 through the end of chapter 11, near the end of chapter 11, all Israel will be saved. Do you see it? Do you see what he's doing? Do you understand why this is important? If we just jump into the middle of verse 10 or start pulling verses out of these three chapters without understanding what it is Paul is doing, we will fall prey to what? Gross misinterpretation. We need to understand his purpose. We need to understand his goal. What's he driving at? What's he dealing with? What's he trying to answer? What's he responding to? And how does he proceed? His method is very clear. He's going to prove. I know what you're thinking, but I want you to understand this. The word of God has not failed insofar as it concerns the ethnic Jews. And you must grasp these three pivotal truths. Basically, it rests on a syllogism, syllogism in logic. We've lost sight of logic. Well, we won't go down that road, but we have. We've lost sight of logic in our day. A syllogism, syllogism is simply lays at the, found, lies at the foundation of logic. A syllogism is based on one premise, a second premise from which you draw a conclusion, right? That's a syllogism. Premise number one, fire burns. Premise number two, I'm flammable. Conclusion, fire is dangerous. You can prove premise one, premise two. Therefore, you're absolutely certain. If I say fire is dangerous, you know that is a logical statement because it stands on firm premises, right? He's dealing with a false syllogism. The false syllogism is this. Premise number one, all ethnic Jews are God's people. All ethnic Jews are God's chosen ones. Premise number two, uh, most of those ethnic Jews have rejected God. Conclusion, God is unfaithful. And all Paul, all Paul is doing in his three chapters is doing what? Your first premise is wrong, folks. Your first premise is wrong. Absolutely wrong. And let me explain it, unpack it for you in these three truths. Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Truth number two, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Truth number three, we'll get there eventually. All Israel, what does he mean by that? Will be saved. That's his point. We narrow our focus now and we come to his opening statements in chapter 9. And here I just want to draw out for you very simply four key lesson, lessons. I find the first two extremely challenging. I find lesson three and four extremely comforting. Here they are. The first lesson arises from Paul's wish. Look at what he says again, verse one. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Why does he say all that? Very wordy. Because you know why? He's accused of being anti-Semitic. He himself, a Jew, is actually accused of being a Jew hater. Why? Because he's calling out his fellow countrymen as being outside of God's love. Outside of salvation. Actually being accursed. So he wants to make it clear. No, 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 no. I have unbelievable love for them. And my great sorrow, my anguish, it's unceasing. Here's what I could wish. 
I could even wish that I myself were accursed, as they're accursed right now in God's sight. I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, these Israelites. Oh, there's a tremendous lesson there, folks, from Paul's wish. Martin Luther, commenting on that very statement, wrote the following. It seems incredible that a man would desire to be damned in order that the damned might be saved. Isn't that incredible? I really don't know how, how to enter into it. I'll be honest. I can't relate to what Paul is saying, to be perfectly honest. It is incredible, mind-boggling, that a man would desire to be damned in order that the damned might be saved. It's even more incredible when you consider how the Jews treated the Apostle Paul. Wow. What does he say in 2 Corinthians 11? Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, all at the hands of his fellow countrymen, all at the hands of those for whom he is willing to be accursed if it meant their salvation. You add to that list trials and imprisonments. You add to that list slander and malice and disdain and contempt. Oh, there is a challenging lesson in there. How do we respond? Let me put it to you by way of question. Series of questions. How do we respond to a drug addict or a gay prostitute? I'll repeat it. How do we respond to a drug addict or a gay prostitute? How do we respond, let's simplify it, to a difficult co-worker or unbelievably difficult family member? I dare say we often respond as follows. Why don't they get their act together? Why don't they get their act together? Do we have great sorrow and unceasing anguish for the homosexual? Do we? Do we have great sorrow and unceasing anguish for the illegal alien, the undocumented worker? Do we have great sorrow and unceasing anguish for the outspoken liberal? Do we have great sorrow and unceasing anguish for the radical Muslim? Bomb them all to smithereens for all I care. Hey, Oh, the spirit of the Apostle Paul. This speaks to me. This has spoken to me powerfully this past week. I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, those who are lost, do I agonize over the lost? I could only come to one conclusion this past week. If I don't agonize over the lost, there can only be one reason. The reason is this. 
My knowledge of God's grace is simply theoretical. It is not experiential. My knowledge of God's mercy is merely intellectual. But it has never melted my heart for my own sin. From which I extend such extravagant mercy to others. Oh, that is a powerful lesson from Paul's wish. Second lesson is this, equally challenging from Israel's privilege. I mean, look at that list again, verses 4 and 5. The adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises, the patriarchs, according to the flesh, whom Christ himself, one of their own kinsmen, one of their own countrymen, an Israelite. Have any people ever been as blessed, as privileged of the, as the nation of Israel, especially as they stood in contrast to the nations which were groping around in absolute darkness? Yeah, what good did it do them? They were just as blind, the vast majority of them. Despite all of those privileges, all of those privileges, incidentally, that oozed Christ. Go back to the list. The adoption, Christ is the true Son of God. The glory, Christ is the true tabernacle, the true temple. The covenants, Christ is the fulfillment of the covenant. The giving of the law, Christ is the fulfillment of the law. The worship, Christ is the fulfillment of the worship. The promises, He's the fulfillment of all those promises. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they all look forward to Christ. Christ, 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 given to the nation of Israel in each and every one of these privileges. And yet the moment the substance arrived on the scene and the shadow should have disappeared, oh, their animosity and enmity toward the one to whom their entire system of worship pointed. Oh, what a challenging lesson there is there. To be blind in the midst of such privilege. I meet a lot of people, says one preacher, swimming neck deep in Christian culture who have been inoculated to Christ. They have just enough of him not to want all of him. When that happens, what you have are people who have been conformed to a pattern of religious behavior, but never transformed by the Spirit of God. You have people who are hearing, but are not hearing. You have people who are hearing, but are not hearing. Blinded by the privileges. Blinded by the blessings. Have, have I, have you, have we intellectualized the faith? Or to simply we agree with a set of propositional truths? Have we legalized the faith whereby it is simply a code of conduct by which we seek to live? Have we psychologized the faith where it is simply a crutch to help us get through the day? Have we politicized the faith where it's all about God and country? Have we made a mess of the faith? Because we've been blinded to Christ who stands in the midst, the center, the foundation, everything moving, circling around him. Oh, says John Owen, faith receives Jesus. Faith looks to Jesus, comes to Jesus, flees to Jesus, leans upon Jesus, trusts in Jesus, holds to Jesus, and rests upon Jesus. Oh, a challenging lesson there. From Israel's privilege, blindness in the midst of blessing. Here's the third lesson, far more comforting. From Christ's blessedness, 
Look, it's just packed in there. Start with me at the start, at the beginning of verse 5. To them, that is the Israelites, belong the patriarchs. And from them, there's a third relative clause, uh, clausal statement. From their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ. Now look what's just packed in there right at the end of this statement. Three truths, non-negotiables, concerning the Lord Jesus. Number one, he is God. There you have it in black and white. Debate is over. He is God. Second truth is this. He is overall. It can mean one of two things. He is overall by virtue of the fact that he's the creator, the one by whom, for whom, and through him all things were created. I think it's more likely Paul has in view his mediatorial kingdom, that he is the one that God has now established as the head of all things. And the third truth is this. He is blessed forever. And blessedness is found in him alone. Hear these words from George Swinnick. This is the highest. This is the highest and greatest gift which the infinite God can give to us. He cannot give us anything greater than his son. Because he cannot give us anything greater than himself. And in Christ, what do we find? We find that we are free from the wrath of God. We find that we are now an adopted child of God. We find that we are absolutely certain of God's providence. This one who is over all things, governing all things for our good. And we discover that we are absolutely certain of the fulfillment of the promise of God. Oh, a tremendous lesson flowing from Christ's blessedness. And now the fourth lesson, also very encouraging and comforting, God's faithfulness. First statement, verse 6, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. Again, that is his main motif, central, pivotal throughout these three chapters. It is not as though the word of God has failed. God's faithfulness is absolutely certain. Will the promises of Romans chapter 8 stand? Will the foreknown be glorified? Will God work all things together for our good? Will God give us all things with Christ Jesus? Will nothing separate us from the love of God in Christ? Yes, 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 and yes. The promises purchased by the blood of Christ will be performed by the power of God according to the word of God, which can not fail. That is a sure and steady foundation. And in the midst of these three chapters, much of them complex to understand, difficult at times to understand, trying as we read and study and, and attempt to enter into them. But in the mind of the Apostle Paul, absolutely necessary. Why? 
Because this great unchanging truth reality stands upon what? The faithfulness of God. That the word of God does not change. Therefore the promises of God cannot fail. Therefore the child of God has absolute faith, absolute hope that God will accomplish all that he has promised. All that he has revealed in his word. We come now to the fourth thing. Remember, we began very wide, an overview of Romans, narrowed our focus, an overview of chapters 9, 10, 11, narrowed our focus even more, four important lessons arriving out of those six verses. Now we narrow it to the Lord's table, and there we have a visible testimony of the faithfulness of God as it rests upon the death, burial, and resurrection of the Son of God. I ask you now to bow your heads and pray with me as we seek the Lord's blessing upon this wonderful feast. Our Heavenly Father, we return thanks for the privilege of being here in your presence, united by the Spirit, this day at this very moment. We praise you for the Lord Jesus, the fulfillment of all the Old Testament's hopes and expectations and promises and prophecies. We praise you for the new covenant established in his blood. Thank you for your word as it has gone forth. And now ask that as the gospel is made visible before us, that we would receive Christ. That we would truly feed upon him, delight in him, rejoice in him. And the great salvation that he has secured for us. We ask it of you in his matchless name. Amen.